Hi, welcome to Push Dose Medic, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. This podcast was created to build a bridge between the knowledge gained in the classroom and the clinical setting. So thanks for listening, sit back, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, guys, to the Push Dose Medic podcast. I'm your host, Jaron. I want to thank you guys for tuning in this week. I uh, hope the information I'm putting out is beneficial from you. I've heard some pretty good reviews, so I do appreciate all the support, and I enjoy doing this for you guys. So this week I'm going to talk about something that I feel is the silent killer in pre-hospital and in-hospital uh, care. It's something that we see a lot. I know I see it on a almost weekly basis. Um, I work in a very high acuity, well, I work with a lot of old people, a lot of geriatrics, a lot of nursing homes. So I come in common, come in contact with this fairly often, and that's sepsis. Um, there's huge mortality rates with sepsis. It's a ongoing problem that we really haven't hit the nail on the head with treatment. We've come up with some great ideas, but we really just haven't nailed down how to treat sepsis early and reduce the mortality rates. So we often think of heart disease and trauma as our main killers, but sepsis is laying in the back. Um, it has to do with heart disease. It can happen in trauma, especially. And it's our silent killer. You always hear time is muscle, time is brain. Well, with sepsis, time is tissue. And our brain and our muscle are made of tissue, so it definitely fits. Time is tissue. And the key for treatment is early and smart recognition. And I say smart recognition because a lot of people meet SIRS or sepsis criteria, but they need to actually fit into that criteria, if you know what I mean. They need to have a confirmed infection, and we'll get into that. So the sepsis guidelines, they, they change all the time. The treatment uh, with the new research is changing constantly. They're coming up with different plans of action on how to care for these people. Uh, but the definition stays the same, and it's basically just an extreme immune response secondary to an infection. So a simple cut on the finger can result in sepsis. Uh, your body does a really good job at fighting off things, but sometimes it has to hurt you to heal you. And this is one of those times where your body just goes in this crazy extreme response mode to fix a small problem, but ends up hurting you in the long run. So we have two different stages of shock, depending on the literature you read and what year it was, there's multiple different stages, but we're going to classify these into two separate stages and that's septic and septic shock. So being septic is basically being sick with an immune response associated with organ failure with a known infection. So the key word there is with a known infection. Uh, that's what's going to make you eligible in the criteria and activate a sepsis alert. Next is septic shock. It's very similar, but add in the hypotension with the use of pressor support to maintain a 65 or greater MAP pressure. Your fluid boluses are not working. They're not responding to it. You need pressors that now they classify into septic shock and also a lactate greater than four. But remember, everybody stresses out about lactates and sepsis. Lactate 
test for sepsis is not a defined test. It's helpful and it lets you guide your treatment plan, but it's it's not a defined test. Uh, lactate is just a stress response from the body, and your body is trying to fight off an infection. So obviously, we're going to have an increased lactate. So the big thing with identifying sepsis is using the screening tools and being diligent in this and really taking the time to accurately identify who is septic and who is not. So I've talked to ER nurses, I've talked to other paramedics and providers, and it's commonly overused. We call sepsis alert for all kinds of people that really do meet the criteria, but do not need a septic workup. It seems everybody in the hospital gets a septic workup these days, though. So we should be identifying who is actually septic and who just has a different underlying process. So let's go over the SIRS criteria. And this is what you're going to use to identify who is septic and who is not. And they only need to meet two of these. And you'll see how easy it is to meet two of these. So SIRS criteria, and it stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. So you have to meet two of these and have a confirmed infection. And this can be a wide variety. If you're walking in a nursing home, most of the time you'll probably find a confirmed infection somewhere. Especially in a hospital. They're pretty dirty places. So in EMS, we have a lot of mnemonics and stupid little names to remember things. Uh, we d- I don't have one for this one. I just found it easy to remember that your body is trying to fight. It's in a hypermetabolic state. It's really in overdrive, so everything's kind of ramped up. Uh, there's only one value that's going to be low, and I'll explain that. So your temperature. You're going to be febrile in this case. So anything at 100.9 or greater you're going to qualify in this criteria. And this all really depends on the stage of sepsis. Early stages of sepsis, your patients will be febrile with the inflammatory response. But what you will also see is in your late stages, they can actually exhibit as hypothermic. And this is when the vessels really start to constrict the attempt to compensate for that hypoperfusion. So if you are really confident that they're meeting this criteria. They have a known infection, they're hypotensive. And you see that, that hypothermic number, that means you're in the later sign. That means you really need to get on the ball. You're probably going to need pressors um, and get them to the hospital. Because remember time is tissue with these patients. Next is going to be your heart rate. So you're thinking anything greater than 90. So anyway, that's tachycardic. Remember we're in a hypermetabolic state. We're really trying to fight. The only caveat to this is think of your older populations, especially where I work. We have a ton of them. You got to think your beta blockers. You might not have that tachycardia when your beta blockers are in being taken. So always keep that in the back of your mind. Next is your respiratory rate. And I know we always put 16, 17, or 18, but it's actually really important to comp or actually count these respiratory rates. Next one we really can't do in the pre-hospital world. Um, I don't know who can. I've never heard of an agency that can draw labs and run them. I know you can use ABGs and stuff like that with ISTETs, but I don't think you can get a white blood cell count. And that's your next value. So if you're transporting somebody and you're looking at lab values, it's going to be your white blood cell count. So anything over 11,000 or anything below 4,500 is going to qualify. And we're not really going to use that one pre-hospital, so you can take that one how you want. So those are the four main ones that we're going to use for SIRS criteria. Since we don't really use the white blood cell count, um, 
I like to add this other one, which in my mind makes more sense than anything. And it definitely drives your care. And that's using entitled CO2. I know a lot of students and a lot of people that when I was first in paramedicine, you know, entitled was only used for respiratory and we can figure out if it's CHF or COPD or a constriction issue or we use it in ROSC and that's, that's completely right. But we can also use it for cardiac function as well. It's a direct reflection on perfusion. It's really cool. We can just look at a number and figure out how well the patient's actually perfusing. So considering we don't really use the white blood cell count in pre-hospital because we're not able to draw labs and send them off, uh, one I like to use, which is really cool, is entitled CO2. Um, anything less than 25 millimeters of mercury is going to be bad for the patient. This is a direct reflection of perfusion. And I know a lot of people think it's really just for our asthmatics and we want to see that shark fin or we want to go from 8 to 45 during a cardiac arrest, and that means ROSC. And that's all we get hyped up about. But if we can do trending numbers on a transport and watch them go from 30 to 25 to 20, we know we're not headed in the right direction. Um, it's a direct reflection on our perfusion. And it's actually proven that mortality increases and your lactate's actually greater than four when you have an entitled below 25. So that's not a technical one you can actually use for search criteria, quote unquote, but it's a good tool to use to see where on this track you are. Are you closer to septic shock or are you just in the beginning stages of sepsis? So remember time is tissue. So you really want to get on top of these patients. It's just a really good tool to use. And remember, if you look at these numbers, it's really important to select these patients carefully. Are you going to activate a sepsis alert on a hypotensive geriatric patient with a cloudy Foley and a couple, a couple ulcers? Or the hypotensive triathlete, which is probably just dehydrated, because besides the infection, they both meet criteria. They're both going to be hyperthermic. They're both going to have an extremely high heart rate and respiratory rate. So don't walk into the ER with someone that just got done running the Boston Marathon and activate a sepsis alert, because they're probably not septic. So we've we've qualified these people and search criteria we want to go ahead and treat them. So how do we do that? Well, the surviving sepsis campaign. Controversial, yes, uh, but it's, it's the closest we're getting on actually treating these patients. Um, within the first hour of care, they actually call it the surviving sepsis bundle, the one-hour bundle. And this is what we as pre-hospital providers and the ER need to do. So within the first hour, uh, they want lactate measurements drawn. They want cultures obtained and they want actually broad-spectrum antibiotics um, delivered. And also at 30 milliliters per kilogram of normal saline administered. And during that time, you want to monitor your patient to see if they actually need pressors. So maintaining a MAP of 65, are they responsive to the fluid challenge, or do we need to start some levofed or um, whatever presser you choose? We carry levofed for our sepsis patients, but... You can use whatever your agency uses. So as you can see, this all really kind of makes sense. We want to see how far along we are with the lactate. We want to obtain the cultures to actually see what we're battling against. And due to the importance of having antibiotics, we want to go ahead and administer broad spectrum. Uh, actually went to a symposium last year, the Corey Pittman Symposium, and some really important people and smart people 
talked about sepsis and said there's a 17-fold immortality for every hour antibiotics are delayed. So there's the controversy, administer broad spectrum, create a superbug, things that are resistant, but also we don't want to delay. If we can administer broad spectrum, go ahead and get a jump on fighting this bacteria, it's better for the patient. The next thing that's, I think, a little controversial is the fluid resuscitation. So what are we, are we overloading these people with 30 mils per kg? Do we use LR? Do we use plasmolite, normal saline, you know, very acidic stuff, very high in chloride? Well, you have to use what you have. Um, just because you don't like normal saline or you think this is better, you shouldn't delay your care. You shouldn't call the facility and say, well, I didn't get a fluid bolus because the pH of normal saline is 5.3 or 5.5, and that's just bad for an acidic patient. Well, yes, they're in extreme metabolic acidosis, but we have to give them something. Uh, normal saline is part of the, the campaign bundle, the one-hour bundle. That's what they want. Now, I would think LR would probably be better, and plasma light would probably be best, but we don't have those choices, especially not pre-hospital. I've only worked in one agency that actually has LR, and we didn't use it a lot. And actually, the few uh, trials I read didn't show a huge difference in mortality between a normal balanced solution and normal saline. It was more with the renal function. More patients came out with a acute kidney injury, and that was the big thing. And I think that's just due to the induced uh, high chloride levels that uh, normal saline contains when they're resuscitating these patients. So it's our job really and pre-hospital is to identify the signs and symptoms and use our end title to monitor their perfusion status. Yeah, we want to start the saline bolus. We want patent lines. Um, if they're running pressors, they're probably going to start a central line. That'd be the best. But these patients are in a fluid deficit, so go ahead and start that normal saline bolus. They do have the fluid there. It's just not in the right space. Um, they're vaso massively vasodilated within this inflammatory response. And making sure we actually identify these patients and make sure that facility knows that you're coming in with a septic patient so they don't send you to triage or to a hallway bed. You know, these you want to walk in the room and see the cultures and the normal saline bags hanging when you get there. You want to make sure they know that this patient can decompensate very fast. And we all know that ERs can sometimes take a long time depending on how busy they are. So we don't want to delay the care in these septic patients. That's why I call it the silent killer. These, if these patients aren't taken seriously and put in a hallway bed, hours go by. And remember, time is tissue with these patients. They're in an extreme metabolic acidotic state. They're hyperactive. Their body's just going crazy. Massive vasodilation until basically they get so hypotensive that they go into an arrest. Um, that's not the kind of patients you want to mess around with or take lightly. Uh, it's We've becoming a lot better about it. And if you're doing a good job, keep doing it, but just get the information out there to correctly identify these patients. Make sure you're using the criteria and making sure that fits that patient. Remember a lot of people meet the criteria, but only a few will actually meet a true criteria with a confirmed infection. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I uh, hope to actually do this a little more often. It's just, it takes a little bit of time to make sure all these facts are right. And I want to offer good content to you guys. Um, if you have any ideas or subjection, su suggestions, 
uh, please let me know. You can email me or contact me through the website. Remember the website, www.pushdosemedic.com. As stickers, t-shirts, um, and a bunch of other educational content I'll put up there from time to time. But that's all I have for you guys this week. I hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you next time. Take care.